Okay, so here's the deal. Uh, if, again, this is your first time uh, to Redemption Peoria, we've been going through since uh, the first Sunday um, the book of Mark, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, um, because when we started the church, when we started Redemption Peoria, obviously the big question that we have is what is Jesus about? Who is Jesus? Because if we're going to say that we are a church that follows Jesus, we need to know who he is and what he is about. And so we're going through the book of Mark very intentionally. We're past the halfway point. And in the first part uh, of the book of Mark, it was very interesting. And I said this every week I was up here. Um, I mentioned this idea that nobody in the book of Mark knew who Jesus was outside of the demons. And then when we got to the halfway point in, in Mark, this narrative, this dramatic irony that's going on in the book of Mark, we got the halfway. Finally, there's this recognition of who Jesus is, that he is the son of God. Us as readers have known this the whole time, but now we see that this recognition of who Jesus is by the characters in this story, which is very interesting because what happens from that point is we see that Jesus is God. He is the son of God. He is the savior. He is the Messiah. But now he is declaring his march towards the cross. And so now what, what we wrestled with is if he is the Messiah and he is who, who, who everyone is saying he is, why is he talking about dying? And, and now we get to, in the second half of Mark, watch this, this trek of Jesus in this life towards the cross. And what Jim did last week is he um, opened us up to this idea of the theology of, of self-denial. Um, and, and, and it is, um, for all intents and purposes, for us to look at Jesus and say, I see what Jesus is doing. I see how he is acting. He is giving his life to follow his father in heaven to the cross. And now we are told to do the same thing. Now, this is a, a, important because as Christians, if we try to um, follow Jesus without knowing the end of the story, um, we get caught in legalism, which Jesus has been pushing back. So let me say it in another way. Um, without the end of the story... Without Jesus, we, we knowing what Jesus did on the cross for us, there's no point in following Jesus because then we're trying to do it without the end. So, so we're trying to um, earn his grace. We're trying to put him in our pocket. We're trying to make him owe us in one way based on our beating our chest because of the things we do or don't do. And that's legalism. That, that's not Christianity. That's not godliness. Okay, that's not grace. But because he's done and what he will do at the end of our story, we say, oh my gosh, like, like, look what he has done. He's given everything, and that is the reason I follow him in the way that I do. It moves me towards uh, a life of self-sacrifice. And Jim opened that up. And now what we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk about a couple specific things in giving our life. And, and here's what I want to say about this. We're going to talk about divorce. Um, and I recognize that at the end of this, um, I'm not going to be the most popular guy. And to be honest with you, that's not the goal. Um, so I'm just going to do my best to hide behind the text and explain what this is. Um, statistically, half of you in this room, or almost half of you, um, have been divorced, uh, if the numbers are correct. I, I would almost bet, I don't have the exact numbers on this, but over 90% of us in this room know someone who has been divorced. So this isn't going to be an easy thing to talk about. So um, we're going to go at our text, but I want to lay a foundation very quickly because it gets our mind working in the right direction for us to understand what, what we need to do. And, and here's where I want to start. Um, so 
So, so if, if we see what Jesus is doing, marching towards the cross, we as Christians want to follow that, then the idea of being a Christian is living this life of constantly um, repenting or conforming to, to who God is. And what I mean by that is you have the way that you think about things. You have your, here's how I view this. Here's how I view this. This is what I think should happen when I raise my kids. This is how I think marriage should go. This is how I think my job should go. You have all of these things and you bring them to the table. And God, in all of his beauty, brings all of his things to the table and he never loses okay so when he brings his things so our life as a christian is constantly conforming submitting to who he is and if we're ever in a place we're not we're not being convicted and repenting over and over this is a fancy word called sanctification if we're not living this life out in such a way that we are repenting of our ways recognizing that his way is better that then we're lost in as first john would say disobedience if we are intentionally not following not submitting to what god wants no matter how hard it seems that's not christianity either so as much as it is not your workspace, it's not as much you can earn God, there is still this grace that moves you. And James tells us there is a type of faith that is active and there is a type of faith that is dead. And so, uh, and right now I'm in my devotional time reading the, the book of 1 John over and over and over again. And I'm amazed at how much John, through the power of the Holy Spirit, calls a spade a spade. Like he says, if, if you, uh, actually I wanted to read, I, I busted out my Bible before I walked up because I wanted to read some of this. Just listen to what he says, okay? Um, this is in, in 1 John 2. I'll read something from 3 as well. He says it over and over in 1 John, and he says this, and we know this, and this we know, that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word and in him, uh, truly, the love of God is perfected. Chapter 3, listen to what he says here. Um, uh, verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he is righteous whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning okay i'm really jacked right now i'm preached in two weeks so let's do this um okay so so here here's here's how we we, we can get at this okay um the, the reality is us as christians see things that god puts in front of us and they are hard the way we can understand this is the very idea of the term we use in submitting to god like think of james 4 7 when it says submit to god resist the devil it doesn't say agree with him. Like the idea, even the Greek word of submitting means to come under. So, so, so submitting is not just, yes, I, if you agreed with everything God said, then you wouldn't have to submit to what he's telling you. But the idea of submitting immediately signifies that there are things that you don't agree with, but you come under his law. You, though you don't quite understand it or quite, quite agree with it in your awesome mind, you submit to, you come under what he has to say. And, and, and that, that's, that's difficult, right? Because this causes pain within us. This is not always easy. My, my youngest son, Titus, um, gets really bad growing pains. And as he, he goes through these growing pains, without those pains, um, he, he's not growing. So they are a sign that he is growing. And in the same way, we feel the sense of conviction, the sense that I need to conform my life. I need to submit to who he is. It's hard. And, and this, is, this is seen perfectly in divorce. But, but here's, here's the issue before we get into our text that, that I want to say about that is um, this makes it difficult. And I need some grace here, y'all, because this is not something easy to talk about. This makes it difficult when the church um, cordially accepts certain sins um, that God would say is, is not okay. So, um, so the homosexual is not allowed in the room. But the man who works 80 hours a week neglects his family so he can climb the corporate ladder 
Like, like we, we don't want the, the couple who's living together before marriage. We, we, we know the kind of scarlet letter there. Um, but but the, uh, the, the person who, who raised that, and hear me, give me some grace on my Dutch brothers, just give me a second. But coffee, right? For you to say anything, um, like, like coffee or cigarettes, when is a vice, when, G, when Paul would tell us to not have any vices about us, when there is something that you go, I cannot do without that. that, that that's a vice. Right? I, and uh, I think overall, I'm just going at it right now. Here we go. Um, Overall, we can see this perfectly, specifically in America, in food, right? God has given us food as a gift. So when we enjoy taking a tortilla chip and dipping in guacamole, and we go, tortilla chip, guacamole, guacamole is beautiful. Tortilla chips are beautiful. Combined, they make something even more beautiful. And when you consume that, you go, yes, okay? Now, now that causes something within you, and what it's supposed to do, food is meant for, is a means to an end. It is supposed to enjoy food so we recognize that God is good, but that's not what we do. We, we hoard food, we, we eat it out of boredom, we eat it out of comfort, and we treat food as it's the end. See, so you can see that we take these small things and we treat them um, as okay, but, but, but the reality is they're, they're really not okay, and, and, and this is um, probably most obvious when it comes to Divorce. Um, man, the LGBT community just screams at us because us as a church will, will, will condemn them for wanting to get married, but our, our pastors all over the country have been divorced and remarried three, four, five times. And you can't help but go, yeah, you're kind of right. Like, who are we to say anything about that? And so um, I, I need you to understand this, this isn't an easy thing for us to, to, to upheaval, but, but here's the last thing that I will say that is important for us to understand going into it. When you bring your things to the table and God brings his things to the table, here's something you can bet on. Here's something you can absolutely be positive of. As much as you think the things you are bringing to the table is for your most good, I promise you he cares more about your joy than you do. I promise you no matter what it is, whatever you think you know better than the word of God, he cares deeply about how much joy you have. And when I say joy, when you lay your head down at night and you know, even though it feels like it's not going to be all right, it is. In that moment, you have this crazy sense of joy. And I feel like too often as Christians, we take it for granted. But that's another conversation. This idea that God would care more. He would give you laws. He would give you rules. James calls it a law of liberty. A law of liberty. Something that can find you so you can be free. He cares more about your joy than you do. I was totally reminded on this. So for, for the reason I was gone last week is um, my buddy's moving to North, North Carolina because he's in the military and we wanted to see him. He lives in Washington. And so we're like, hey, this would be fun. Let's cram five people in a small Toyota Camry and drive up the West Coast. And so we, we stopped in Santa Monica and then we went to San Francisco, then Portland, and then into Olympia in Washington. And um, it sounds awesome. Yay, Pacific Coast Highway. But three of those five people are under the age of seven. Um, so we have a, a pretty specific rule in the, the Myers house is when we're driving in, in, in a car, when we all get in a car together, no iPads, no iPods, no headphones. Whatever music we're going to listen to, we're going to listen to together. Um, and so uh, we have this rule, except when we're uh, traveling. When, whenever we have um, over two or three hour drive, we're allowed to bust out the iPads and I, iPhones and whatever. And so the kids are excited. They're watching movies. And um, I've shared this before when I, I taught at Redemption Arcadia, but I was reminded of this because um, when we were driving, we're driving through like the, the Redlands, right? So we're driving through massive trees. And then as we're driving across the Pacific Coast Highway, we're seeing the ocean miles in my endless ocean. Okay. And in those moments I say, boys, put the games away. And of course there's this groan. And in that moment, they may feel like I'm trying to take away their fun. But the reality is I'm not trying to take away their fun. I'm not against their joy and happiness in that moment. I'm for it more than they are. 
At any moment, they can play a silly motorcycle game. But only in this moment, we're going to see trees the size of our car. Like, this, this is a moment for you to look outside your window and see something you will not see that often. In that moment, I care more for their joy than they do. And yeah, sure, when we're driving through Blythe and Courtside, I'm like, put your head down, play your video games. Okay? Because, so, so my point is, I, I care more for their joy in that moment than they do. And, and when we begin to talk about divorce, when we begin to, to engage something that's difficult for us to talk about, we need to understand that God cares more about it. Um, than we do. As we go to our text, I'm going to read a quote from you because um, I felt like the best way uh, that I can explain this was um, said better by a guy named John Piper. Some of you guys are familiar with his name. Um, he used to be a pastor in Minnesota. If you don't know who he is, he does a lot of great work in ministry that he, uh, he does for the whole church. Um, this is not a quote I gave to the, the booth because I want you just to listen to what he says, and I hope it sets a, a tone as we open up to Mark chapter 10. This is what the quote is. You can just listen to it. For many of you have uh, walked Uh, for many of you have walked through a divorce and are now single or remarried and whose parents were divorced or some other loved one, the mere mention of the word carries a huge weight of sorrow and loss and tragedy and disappointment and anger and regret and guilt. Few things are more painful than divorce. It cuts to the depths of a person unlike any other relational gash. It is emotionally more heart-wrenching than the death of a spouse. Death is usually clean pain. Divorce is usually dirty pain. In other words, the enormous loss of a spouse in death is compounded by the divorce, by ugliness of sin and moral outrage at being so wronged. It is often long years in coming and long years in the settlement and the adjustment. The upheaval of life is immeasurable. The sense of failure and guilt and fear can torture the soul. Like the psalmist, night after night, a spouse falls asleep with tears. Work performance is hindered. People don't know how to relate to you. And more and more friends start to withdraw. You feel like you're wearing a big scarlet D on your chest. The loneliness is not like the loneliness of being a widow or widower. For a person who has never been married, it is a class all by itself because the sense of devastated future is all-consuming. So I know that some of you sit in this room right now and you have been divorced. Um, and there are some of you who feel like you're like thinking about divorce and, and, and maybe you're in that long trying to figure it out and, and maybe your parents were divorced and, um, and this is not an easy conversation to have. Candace and I very, very intentionally from the beginning said that's never going to be something we joke about. We're never going to say, I'll give you the papers or you're going to come home and I'm going to be gone. We, we just chose from the beginning never to ever make a joke about this because this is a terrible thing and it ruins lives. Now, With that said, I'm going to read our text, and I hope wherever you are when it comes to divorce that you'd hear what I'm saying. More importantly, um, you would ignore what I'm saying, and you'd hear what Jesus is saying in love. Let's do it. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. This is what it says. And he left there. He was in Capernaum. If you guys remember, uh, Jim finished his time uh, and and all the things that he was talking in his theology of self-denial and talking about that. And as we go specifically, he leaves there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered to him. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him and ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Let, let, let's, uh, let's stop real quick and, and set the, the context for us because this is going to be very important. Uh, let's, the, the, the region that he's in, if you, you can uh, look there in verse 1, and he went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. This is the Judean wilderness, okay? And he's in a place right now. We, we've been familiar um, with this place. We've actually seen it one more time prior to this, and it was by a guy named John the Baptist. If you remember John the Baptist, John the Baptist was some wildcat wore some crazy clothes, but just preached like nobody's business. He's out in the Judean wilderness, and he's out there, and he's just screaming at people, calling the Pharisees brood of vipers. He don't care, right? He's a honey badger. And so he, he essentially 
Well, he's in this Judean wilderness. Now Jesus finds himself in, in this same place, and he's asked the question about divorce, which is not on accident, because if we know the story, if we can look back, our man John the Baptist was beheaded because he spoke to the, the, the leader there, Herod Antipas. He spoke to the leader there, accusing him, telling him what he has done in taking, hear this, his brother's wife is not okay. Now, his brother's wife didn't like that, asks for John the Baptist's head, and she gets it, okay? Now, Jesus, in that region, is asked the very same question. Is it starting to make sense? So this would be like um, uh, Larry King having a show. I don't even know if Larry King still has a show, but Larry King bringing on a bunch of pastors to have a panel to talk about homosexuality when there's some big hot-and-button issue. He's not, he doesn't care about what his, their answers are. He's looking for a good show, and he recognizes everybody watching the television is not going to like what these pastors have to say. So the Pharisees come out, and they're trying to, and I quote, test him. They're, they're trying to trap him because he's in a place right now that if he talks about this in the wrong way, though he's going to embrace the cross, his time has yet not come, and the people are going to try to try to crucify him or do something terrible to him. So this helps us kind of get behind the context of what is going on. So let, let's keep going on with our text in verse 3. Um, he answered them, what did Moses command you? So here is the response. Based on the question, they ask a question. Jesus responds in a question. That's kind of his MO. Um, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this command. So um, no matter what Jesus says in this moment, so you've got, you got to understand what we were just told a, a verse ago is there's a crowd surrounding, right? So it's, fight, fight. So they're coming around. They're, they're gathering around what Jesus is going to say because the ruler of this time, no matter what Jesus, if Jesus um, um, talks bad about Obama in this moment, then, then all the conservatives are going to love him. But if Jesus talks good about Obama in this moment, then all the liberals are going to love him and all the conservatives are going to hate him. No matter what Jesus does, there are people who hate Herod and love Herod, and he's going to start to draw this line between the mass that follow him. And he's going to answer this question with a question. And now we're going to get at what he says specifically. He asked, what did Moses command you? They said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce. So immediately we see the underlining tone of what's going on in the text, don't we? Jesus asked, what did Moses command you? And they respond, Moses allowed us. Now, you may think that's not important, but those are two clearly different words, not just in English, but in Greek as well. Like in one moment, um, Jesus is asking, what is right? What should you do? What did he say to do? And in the moment, this moment, they're asking, how far can we go? And, and I'm telling you, when, when I deal with um, younger couples who like just start dating and really love each other and want to get divorced, uh, not divorced, and want to get married, um, <laughs> no, uh, so uh, they, they want to get married, uh, you know, I think it's an understandable question that they usually ask is how far is too far? How, how far can we go? And I think it's understandable, right? You, you love each other and physically attract to each other. These are all good things, but it's not the right question. And Jesus's point, um, in, or at least Mark's point in using these two words is that very idea. You're asking how close can you get when, when, when uh, the command is saying how far should you be? There's a guy who wrote a commentary on the book of Mark that I've been using. I've been quoting that many commentaries, but I thought this line was really helpful. His name's Robert Stein. Um, he says this, clearly to focus on what God allows, but disapproves of due to the hardness of the human heart, rather than what he commands and wills, reveals a misguided focus. So, so he's going to say, your hardness of heart has done this. 
you're, you're looking at this commandment to look for ways as if, as if Moses gave it to you for look, to look for ends to, to, to uh, uh, have a divorce. But Jesus says in this moment, no, the reason that he gave you this commandment is so that you can stay clear from because your heart is hard. But you're seeing it for ways to get in, and that's not the reason. The whole reason he gave you the commandment was to tell you not to get divorced. But you're seeing this, and you're looking for little things to find ways to get divorced. And, and what they quote is Deuteronomy 24.1. And, and I want to, so we can all kind of be good theologians here, uh, look at uh, this passage so we, we can understand. I'm just going to read the first verse, and I want you to understand in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 4, um, verse 1 is only part of this ongoing sentence. At the end of this long ongoing sentence, after four verses, it just says, and, and this is an ab- abomination. So the Pharisees quote just the first part of this, and that's all I'm going to do right now so we can stick to the text. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 24.1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes a certificate of divorce, and it goes on with this ongoing sentence. Well, the discrepancy, if, if I think we have it, yeah, the discrepancy is found in, in these two words because he has found some indecency in her. The, the Hebrew gives a couple different translations, and, and theologians still would argue about what this looks like in the same way that we would argue about um, ways for reasons to get divorced. Some indecency, um, objectableness, offensiveness. There's kind of two major schools of thought at the time when Jesus um, uh, is alive and talking through this. Um, one school of thought by rabbis would say that um, uh, a wife would have to go about um, completely um, having sex with another man, marrying another man, and then this is, this is an obscene, this is uh, something offensive that, that she has done, and then you're allowed to have um, a, a divorce. You're allowed to get a certificate of a, a divorce. But another school of thought, a little more liberal on how they approached it, but quite hilarious, literally would quote some portions where if the, the woman would bring the, the man a meal and it would be cold, that was grounds for divorce, right? Which uh, here, we, that's something we're going to agree with and push hard. Um, so, um, <laughs> you guys think I'm joking, but um, no, Candace, I love you, Candace. Um, um, so so here, here's the, the, the point. Jesus is trying to unearth this commandment, and they're getting lost in the idiosyncrasies, and the point is God hates divorce. He says this over and over and over again, how he hates divorce, but he goes on to explain, just so we don't get caught up in that text, he uses the Bible to explain the Bible. In verse 6, he says this, so uh, in, committee, in, in um, finishing that set, sentence, because of the hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Um, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So now we get a broad overview. Jesus, in gosh, the dude is sick wise. He, in this moment, looks at the situation and says, you're trying to find something. You're trying to critique the the scripture for your own gain. So you won't this or you won't that. But why don't we just step back for a moment and look at the broad scope of scripture. And he immediately jumps to the beginning of the story in Genesis 1. And he kind of gives us this domino effect of what happens. The first thing, as he quotes Genesis 1, um, he's going through 26 through 28, and he actually ends up going to to two a little bit. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So here's the first declaration. Here is how it is. Before 
you were anything, a thought of anyone, it does not matter. He made some of you male and he made some of you female. And I'm not trying to make some, but like the reality is God decided this before you ever could decide this. Okay. And so he makes this decision and there are some people who are male. There are some people who are female. Now he uh, declares this, he makes this a declaration. And then there is some um, action that the males and the females take to to do something with that. In, In verse seven, he says this, therefore, because God has made some male and some female therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife so if the male sees the female and goes i like that female right and and he likes her then in this moment we would like to to be together forever the man leaves his this is right okay this is new to anyone that he leaves the parents she leaves her parents and these two be, become one they, they leave each other and i'm jumping ahead because that's what he ends up saying in verse eight and the two shall become one flesh so they are no longer two but one so here is jesus declaring something beautiful for us Two people, male and female, they see each other. They leave their parents, the two people that were together originally. They, they leave their parents and they, become, they come together. And now those two people, according to Jesus, according to, to Genesis, are now one. Which, um, in a comical way, is, is kind of true, right? I, I don't know if you guys ever see couples that have been married for like 30 years. And you're just looking at it like, are they twins? Like, what is going on? They like look alike and they like smell alike. You know what I mean? It's really weird. Um, and, but, but this is not seen that they, they act and they have the same mannerisms because they've been together and it's weird. It's almost like the, the two are one, but this is seen perfectly in these two coming together in sexual union because they have a baby who is exactly half and half, right? Like you can look at a child and go, I see they got this nose, they got this mouth. These two people come together and they are together. And now there's this warning about this, that when that happens, there is no other option. That there is not you making this. See, the, the beauty of what happens in Genesis 1, as a God the Father, the first father ever to walk his bride down the aisle, walk his daughter down the aisle, he is the father, he brings her to Adam, he then performs the ceremony, and this is God doing this. Before creation, male and female, he made you. He knew how this was going to happen. And in this moment, You cannot separate it. You cannot separate it. So much so, and I quote, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. This is the reality of divorce. So so, um, Allison read up to 10, but we're going to read verses 11 and 12. And Jesus gives this broad scope, and, and he's, he's careful here in all of his sovereignty, very careful, because he knows his time um, for the cross is coming, but it's not yet. And so if he says one thing here, um, that might trigger something. So when he is alone with his disciples, he goes in depth into that statement, and this is where it becomes extremely hard for us as Christians. This is not a popular idea, guys. This is not an easy statement for us to be like, yeah, that makes total sense. But this is what he says in verse 11. We'll start now, verse 10, sorry. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. Still talking about divorce, obviously. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The two leave their parents, become one. And in this moment, if this man leaves this woman and goes and marries another you can, you can have whatever $250 law certificate, you can say whatever you want, but in this moment, those two people being separated, the, the man leaves and goes and marries another, he has committed adultery. Now, what is adultery? 
Adultery is, is committing a sin against your wife, having sex, uh, sex or, or um, emotional, uh, being uh, attached to, whatever you want to call it. It's kind of a junk drawer term, but he's, he's committed this adultery towards why? Because even though he can say he's divorced, he is still together. So he is now, according to Jesus in this moment, he is committing adultery against her. And the same is true for her. If, if you want to say, yeah, we, we, we got divorced, um, and now I'm allowed to marry whoever you want. And, and in this moment, Jesus would say, no. No. I need that to, to sink in because my heart is throbbing right now to, to give some type of out. But I need you to understand the weight of divorce right now. It's unacceptable. It's not okay. And man, like, yes, I know. So, and I've, I've seen the situations where it seems like there is no hope. But I'm telling you, God cares more about your joy than you do. And he says this is something that is not okay. So what do we do? We, like Jesus, read the text through the text. I do believe there are ways, with everything that I've said, as much weight as I can put on divorce not being okay, there are two ways that a man or a woman um, can be divorced. And I say that very carefully because I do not believe ultimately that, and I don't think the Bible, ultimately that God in, in the big story, the grand narrative, ever would want this. He hates this. But, but there are two ways to go about this. Um, and the first is this. Um, if you were to read the book of Mark, uh, there's two other books in the, the Gospels, uh, uh, Luke and uh, Matthew, that, that correspond. They're called the Synoptic, synoptic Gospels. They, they're in sync with one another. Um, and Matthew talks about the exact thing Jesus is talking about. He quote, makes the same quote, but he adds a little caveat. And this has been known in the theological world as the exception clause. This is what he says in Matthew chapter 5 and in chapter 19. Actually, I'll read them both to you. This is what it says. I, but I say to you that everyone... That um, everyone who divorces his wife, caveat, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Matthew 19, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another woman commits adultery. So we, there's a little freedom here that goes in a moment that if these two, if when that man leaves that woman she, and, and he, he commits adultery against her, this woman now is free to remarry. Does that make sense? So um, we're going to make it kind of cute, and we're going to talk about three A's that I, this is kind of used in the big church world. Um, the, the first is adultery, A, that there is this reason that you can, you can leave your husband or wife if they commit adultery. Now, if you're a good, astute theologian, immediately you want to ask the question, well, what is sexual morality? Matter of fact, Jesus at one point says sexual morality is looking at a woman with lust in your heart. Like, how do we wrestle with that? Now, I'm going to give you my two cents, which obviously isn't anything, but I think if we look at the confines of what's taking place, um, because sexual morality, at that point, you can go, yeah, I saw him looking at a woman at the gym. It's over. Like, you can find these little things just to divorce for whatever reason, Um, but that doesn't seem to to be the way we should interpret the text, right? Because he says, and I'll go back to our our passage in Mark, um, verse 11, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. So adultery, um, uh, sexual morality, doesn't just seem to be, uh, and I'm not saying I have the exact science of this, but, but it seems to be closer towards um, a man clearly staying with, um, loving, emotionally tied to, and physically tied to a woman. 
right? So what do we do with, and this is a good question that I don't have an exact answer for, the man who just um, sleeps with another woman that is not his wife, does that woman have permission? Listen, this is kind of the hard part of Christianity. We don't have an exact science to this, but that man has clearly committed sexual morality against his wife, okay? Well, what about if he just makes out with her in like first or second base? What if he just, they just make out, or what if they don't even make out, they just flirt at work? At, At what point is the line that we say this, and I think Jesus' point over and over is that the overarching tone of the Bible is that we should be pushing towards reconciliation. That yes, yes, even though God is not happy with divorce and he hates it, absolutely, if your husband or wife cheats on you, that there is a, a door for you to look for someone else. But that should not be your first option. It should not be your first option. You should always seek reconciliation. And I'll, I'll explain why, but, but let me explain the second A. Um, and it's actually not found in the Gospels. And you can turn there if you want. I have the, the, the verses on the, the screen. But in 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 7, if you are married, you want to be married, you have been married, I highly suggest you read um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 because it goes in depth in, in the way that um, people should act before, after, during uh, marriage and all of that, everything in between. And it's very helpful. I would love to read the whole thing, but I'm only going to read verses 10, 11, and 15, so we can kind of get at um, what's being said. This is what it says in, in verse 10. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should, re, she, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So the same declaration. If that woman leaves, she should not do that. And if she does, then she needs to remain single. And that's, dang, that's a tough statement if we've ever, dang. Um, okay, leave the husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Verse 15, but... If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So here's the second one. It's the A, abandonment. The second idea is if two people are married, she's a Christian, he's not a Christian, he's an unbeliever, and he leaves her. He doesn't want anything to do with the faith. He doesn't want anything to do with her. He abandons her. She has, according to Paul in that moment, peace. She, she can live at peace, and she's free, okay? So We have two kind of broad scopes over this, that that in one moment, yes, sexual morality, if there's adultery, I I can't, yes, it's it's there. There's a door. The second one seems to be abandonment. Let's talk culturally, right? Um, The third one I disagree with, and it's abuse. Um, Now, now hear me when I say this, um, because this is probably the question on a lot of your minds. uh, What do we do with abuse? What if a husband is beating his wife um, or vice versa? Uh, you need to understand before I say anything about this, I, I hate this stuff. Like, um, so I think I can argue theologically in church history that if a man in this church is beating his wife, us as elders, and this may sound funny and it kind of is, but I'm totally serious. There's some precedent for us as elders to um, have a meeting with that man. Um, and what I mean by that is meet him in the barn and, yeah, okay? Um, I think there's incidences in church history that if a man thinks he can operate in the church and physically abuse his wife, um, then me and Jim and John have no problem visiting this dude. Okay? Um, and, and that's like, <laughs> yeah, like, but everything within me cries justice, and I just want to drop a right hook, right? Um, but the reality is unacceptable. 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 We, no. Now, with that said, okay, though my dad was a meth addict, Though I saw him steal and do people dirty, I never watched him lay a hand on a woman. It was never, ever, ever okay. And that's a cultural thing, but here in this moment, we no, it's not okay. Now, with that said, I don't think it's grounds for divorce. I, 
I don't think in this moment, if a man is beating a woman, here's why I say this. Biblically, there's nothing there, guys. You say, well, we can use common sense. We can. No, here, here's my issue. Now let me, remove, let me move myself from the justice piece and kind of walk in a sense of mercy just, just for a moment. Um, we're so quick to look at that situation and say, yes, get away from that man. Uh, he, he needs to be alone. Yeah, whatever it is, you need to divorce him. This is all bad. Yes, but, but, but what we've, we, we, we've removed ourselves from his situation. Okay? He's the abuser, right? But no one's thinking about the fact that his dad beat him bloody when he was a kid. No one's thinking that, that he watched his dad. And, and no one's thinking that no one's taught him otherwise. And immediately you want to push, yes, abuse, get out. Now listen, hear me. There is a clear set di- difference between separation and divorce. I think, yes, get the woman out of the house, okay? Yes, she should not be around him. They should clearly be separate. But that's not divorce. God has brought them together. And now I'm going to speak pastorally to you for a moment. I think if when we have a situation like this, by God's grace, we have not yet. Um, if this takes place, we, we, we would believe absolutely she would go stay with a leader in the church or whatever it is, with the kids or whatever it is, and she would separate. And we would, over, we would I, I'm off the top of my head, give it a year. Um, helping this man see not just what he is doing wrong. If he's not living a life of repentance, um, see what's going on, take, take uh, great care in restoring him because God wants them to bring them together. Divorce isn't an option there. It's biblically just not there guys. And yes, I feel the angst of, of everything within you go. Yeah, that's not okay. Because here's the reality of this. When does that line end for abuse? I mean, if we just use our logic and we go, well, he's hitting her. Okay, that's abuse. But what if he's like yelling in her face and like just point, is that abuse? Like calling her every name. Okay, what if he's not yelling in her face and he's just every now and then calling her fat? Like what if he just comes home and he just kind of ignores her and neglects her? Like when is this line of abuse? See, we want to draw the line, but you, you have no like ground in which to draw that line. And so we feel like we bring our things to the table and we say, I think this is right. But God has not said that's right. So it's not. And that's not easy to say, but that's the reality. That, that, that's the, the, the way we would act this out. So um, with all this said, here's, here's how I want to um, uh, finish our, our time together because I know this is an, an easy thing um, and I got to wrap up. When we talk about divorce, you're probably not, most of you, I know we have a, a huge portion of uh, 25 and, and, and under um, who, who attend our church. Uh, there's kind of two things that we can take away from uh, this conversation when Jesus brings up divorce. And you don't have to be married to, to, to go at one of them. Um, I've been married, we're pushing 10 years now. There are some of you in this room who've been married longer than I've been alive, times like five, Jim. Um, <clears throat> okay? But I want to speak to those of you who are not married and want to get married on behalf of those of us who are married. And if you would disagree, if you're married, I'm sorry, but I'll just speak for us now and then you can correct me later. But, but here's what I'm going to say. Outside of choosing Jesus Christ, the decision to follow Jesus Christ or not follow Jesus Christ, the person you marry is the single most important decision you will ever make. More important than your job, more important than where you will live, more important than whether or not you'll have kids. But if you even think about it, um, if your spouse doesn't want you to have that job or doesn't want to live there or doesn't want to have kids, it affects all those other decisions. If you want to get married, The person you marry, who you decide to marry, is single-handedly the most important decision of your life. Quit treating it so lightly. Quit quit acting as if you can just quickly make this decision. I like how cute she is. She has these, listen, 
and I'm going to speak real quickly to, to the ladies. We, we have a lot of morons as guys. We have a lot of little boys who, who try to act like men. And I'm telling you, like, when you begin to let your standard down, it makes it real hard for me as a pastor. Because I'm trying to tell them, you can't act like this. That's not how a man acts. But they're getting all the attention from the girls. So stop giving them that attention. This is important. The rest of your life, you will wake up next to this man. You will smell him. You will smell his breath. You will eat next to him. You, you will not like the way he eats, or you will like the way he eats. You may not like the way he treats your children. You may not like the way he drives, the way he talks. This is the rest of your life. It's not a decision that we just casually walk into. Be meticulous about it. And the fear that you will never get married, I know is ever-present. I know is ever-present. I know it's there. And I have buddies who... Year after year, we're not even talking like you're 20 and you're like, I'm never going to get married. I got, I got homies who are 40 and are, and are making that statement. This is not, this is not easy to, to, to go home by yourself when all of your friends are, are married. But hear me, if you would just trust Jesus, if, if you would believe, I know that I'm getting over spiritual, my charismatic roots are coming out, but if you would just be faithful to follow God and give him everything, man, if you would seek first the kingdom and all of his righteousness, He'll take care of this. He will. He will. He, he's not a man that he should lie. He's as faithful as the sun. Ain't nobody doubting whether or not the sun's coming up tomorrow. He'll take care of it. Now, the second thing I think is for all of us that we can pull from um, this discussion about divorce. The fact that Jesus talks so sternly and the Bible talks so sternly about divorce should cause us great joy in our relationship with God. Because you will wake up tomorrow and you'll go to work or you'll go to school or you'll do whatever you're going to do and you will be unfaithful. You will not get it right. I will not be a good dad always. I, I won't always be a good husband. I'm going to say the wrong things. I'm going to have a bad attitude. I'm, I'm going to think or say things that I shouldn't say. Uh, I'm going to uh, create uh, situations that I shouldn't be in and then act in those situations in the way I shouldn't act. I'm, I'm going to be dishonest or lazy. I'm going to do these things and you will be unfaithful in submitting to God in being a follower of Jesus Christ. But God in all of his beauty in the grand narrative of the story says, I'm not going anywhere. You can go as far as you want, but my reach is even further. How big you think your sin is, my grace is even bigger. This is perfectly told in Ezekiel 16, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. This timeless man that God describes himself as finds this baby who is dying in a field, who is essentially aborted. He takes this baby. This man never ages, right? And so here's this baby. She, she's growing up. He takes care of her, gives her a home, gives her food. She's finally of age to marry. And this man, in this analogy, marries this woman. He, he saved her life. He's taking care of her. And now in this moment, he gives her all the food she can eat, all the places she can stay, all the jewelry she can wear. And this woman, who's had love lavished on her over and over and over again, takes the jewelry and gives it to other men as she commits adultery against them. She takes the food and gives it to other people as she gives away these, these resources that he's given. And she gives herself away. And at the end of Ezekiel 16, all that man says is, you can be as unfaithful as you want but I'm here. Every time I do a marriage, I will say the same thing. Every time I stand before this couple at the wedding, I, the same thing. We're going to go sign a piece of paper that's a contract, but this is not a contract. This is a covenant. You make a contract um, with APS and T-Mobile, that's who you make contracts with. 
but, but, and, and that contract says, as long as I give you resources, you will give me goods. As long as I give you money, you'll give me power. As long as I give me money, you'll give me phone service, whatever it is. But that's not what a covenant is. A covenant says, no matter what you do, no matter how far you go, no matter how cruel you are, I'm not going anywhere. A covenant says, no matter what you bring to the table, I'm here. And that is what God, in all love and all power, proclaimed to you on the cross. You can be so jacked up, man, so jacked up, but he divorcing you. You're his bride. And one day you're going to be spotless. You're going to jump in his arms as us as a body. And we're going to look, as First Peter 1 would say, we're going to see him face to face. And though our hearts throb and we love him now, it's going to be all the more beautiful on that day. He's not going anywhere. He loves us desperately. And divorce does matter because our God reflects reconciliation in everything that he does. May we be the same way. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for who you are. We're grateful, God, for your grace. We're grateful for hard sayings. I mean, there's things that you tell us in your word that just are not easy to hear. I would pray specifically those who... um, are, are divorced here, and uh, if they're remarried, that they would, they would live in peace and, and to go back, and it can be messy, but they would, they would, they would, uh, they would love their, their husbands and wives in this moment now. If they're not married, that they would seek reconciliation at all costs because, Jesus, that's what you've done for us. No matter what pain they think it might bring them, Jesus, that they would trust you. God, we're grateful for you telling us how it is. The rest of the world is selling us crazy stories, but you're telling us how it is, how the world really operates. Thank you for conviction. Thank you for repentance. Thank you for the ability to do both under the banner of your grace. And lastly, Jesus, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you have declared to us that you are not going anywhere, that divorce with us is not an option, that you will care for us, that you will be with us, no matter what we do, no matter what we say, at any moment we can repent and turn to you and you haven't gone anywhere. Thank you for that. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.